Father, we thank you that we can gather and we can worship in this place, in this room. Uh, there's nothing at all special about this place or this room except that you are here with us, and we believe that. Uh, we wholeheartedly uh, come into your presence aware that you are perfect and we are not, uh, aware that we need the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ, aware also that we need each other and we need to extend that mercy and that grace to one another. We're aware, God, that now we, we really long for and need to hear from you. So would you, your spirit and your word speak to us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For the past couple of weeks, we've been studying together a little book in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets, the book of Jonah. Uh, this unique and very plot-twisting story we have discovered is full of surprises. And I'm sure that most of you have been faithfully reading Jonah day after day in preparation for coming here uh, each Sunday. But for the few of you that have not, let's do a quick review, okay? <laughs> if you remember, the story begins when God calls to Jonah in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And then Jonah does what many of us have done, sadly, but if we're being honest, we've done it. When God calls us or commands us to do something, we, like Jonah, tend to say, no, not comfortable with that. Don't feel like I can do that. And Jonah, as you know, runs away in the opposite direction of Nineveh. And Jonah goes down, we are told, to a city called Joppa. That's a port city. And he goes down uh, to a ship headed for a city called Tarshish, which is in exactly the opposite direction of Nineveh. And he goes down into the hold of the ship and down in the hold of the ship, he goes down to sleep. What direction does Jonah seem to be going? Down. That's right. We talked about that last week. But one of the surprising things in Jonah's life is that when things are going down, what he discovers is that God is already there. What he discovers is that God is with him. What he discovers is that God is actually doing something, something in fact that's rather wonderful, amazing, awesome, great is the word that we keep running across in our story. And so God causes this great storm to come up. And the sailors get worried. These are professional sailors. They earn a living by being on the sea. These sailors get worried and they pray to their gods, but to no avail. Their gods aren't listening. And the storm becomes so massive that these sailors begin to throw their prized cargo overboard. So you know that this storm is really serious when they start pitching uh, what they make a living from overboard. And so finally the sailors go to this prophet, this Jonah, who's down in the hold of the ship and has gone down to sleep. And uh, they ask him who he is. And, and he tells them that in effect, he, they are throwing the wrong stuff overboard. And, and he, Jonah, is the problem. He identifies that for them. He tells them that he is on the run from God. And if they want to save their lives, they must throw him over the side of the ship. And so the sailors fearfully and reluctantly oblige. And when they do, the storm immediately stops. And the sailors come to actually believe in God. Not just any God, but the God of the Israelites, Jehovah God, Yahweh. It's the first big, big surprise in this story. 
Now, where is Jonah? Well, he is sinking down, down, down. That's where he is. And God provides, we are told at the end of chapter one, a great fish that swallows Jonah up. And we noted last week that while we might not know any such fish that is capable of swallowing a human being and having that human being survive, live inside them for three days and three nights, that's not really the point. The point is, this is, of course, entirely, completely from start to finish a miracle. That's what this is. For a man to be swallowed by a great fish and live inside it for three days and three nights, that is supernatural, friends. That is what only God can do. And he doesn't do it very often, maybe only once, as far as we know. Inside the fish, Jonah prays. What else can he do? He prays to God as he ponders, as he reflects, as he wonders what will become of him, of his life. And it's there in the darkness that God, we read, hears Jonah's prayer, loves Jonah, and responds to Jonah surprisingly with mercy. God causes this fish, this great fish, to vomit Jonah back onto dry land. And that is great news, gross news, but it's great news. It's great news because that is exactly not what Jonah deserved. You understand. And of course, that's the gospel. We get exactly what we don't deserve. God giving us what we need to overcome sin, to overcome death. That's what God gave Jonah. God is up to some great things in the life of Jonah, but not just in the life of Jonah, which is where we pick up our story in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. And we're going to read that now, and you can follow along on the screen. The Word of God. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city and he proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. And then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, Taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. My favorite word. Wow. Wow. What an amazing story. It just gets more and more surprising. And I might add more and more odd. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. 
Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Does that sound eerily familiar at all? Does it sound like God has moved off of or changed directions with regards to his purpose or, or his plan? Well, the short answer is no, not at all, not one bit. God has not shifted gears and headed a different direction. God has not abandoned his original plan. Uh, God calls Jonah a second time to do exactly the same thing. Jonah, I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh. Nineveh is where people don't know a thing about God and don't really want to. And, and it's just interesting, uh, friends, the word go. You know, it is one of the most fundamental verbs in the Christian faith, the Christian life. Now, unfortunately, all too often we focus on other words, words like uh, stop, for example. We think that the Christian life is mostly about stopping certain things. Stop doing this, stop doing that. I've heard many, many times as people have shared their testimony, they're becoming a member here at the church and they will say, you know, I gave my life to Christ and boy, my life changed a lot. I stopped doing this and I stopped doing this and I stopped doing this. And I get that. I really do. I relate to that. That's part of what my testimony is as well. Um, and it's good. It's a good thing to put off, to stop bad habits or sinful behaviors or patterns, things that are immoral, things that are harmful to us, harmful to others, things that just flat out, just plain dishonor God. Lying, lusting, serving self, grasping, being greedy, uh, feeding the flesh. These are all things that as we grow in our faith in Christ, we do learn to battle them and to put them off or try to put them to death, if you will. But at the same time, we need to remember that the heart of Christian discipleship is not first and foremost characterized by what we stop doing. I mean, if it was, it'd just be better for us all to stay home and hide, right? Don't go out. <laughs> Especially since more and more and more these days, I think we, those of us who follow Christ, find that our values and our ideas are kind of out of step with our increasingly secular culture. But frankly, friends, Jesus doesn't let his followers stay home and hide. That's not who he is. That's not who we are supposed to be. What he, what he said to his followers is go. Go is at the heart of following Jesus, of being a disciple. Uh, after Jesus had come back from the dead, uh, he told his followers, and you're, I'm sure, very familiar with this. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. And he said that because he and the Father are on a mission. Uh, and that mission is to gather a people for himself, a family for himself, if you will, a people from every tribe, every nation, every neighborhood, every office, every school. And to accomplish this, it required that the Father, in essence, say to his son, go. And, and, and Jesus did. And when Jesus came, he came, he lived, he taught, he died right up uh, alongside some men and women who had decided to follow him. And after he came back from the dead, believe me, that was a surprise. He gathered his followers around him and he said, go. It's God's mission, you see. It's the same thing God has always been saying and always been doing. The mission hasn't changed. 
Now understand this, at the heart of Christianity, there is a movement, yes, a gathering movement into something called the body of Christ, into something called the church. It's a community. It's a community strengthening movement. It changes us. It helps us grow. It helps us become like Jesus. But at the heart of Christianity is also a movement that scatters. It goes. And that represents Jesus uh, this movement, this group of people, both as individuals and as a group, represent Jesus, whether that's in Littleton or Highlands Ranch, Lakewood, Denver, Centennial, doesn't matter. We represent Jesus together and individually in neighborhoods, schools, offices, not just here, but all around the world. And it's of interest to me that God doesn't forget why he has called or why he saved Jonah. It's to go. And so a second time, God says to Jonah, because he sure didn't get it the first time, go to Nineveh. And Nineveh, as you know, we kind of rehearsed this last week, is not a good place to be going. Nineveh is a brutal, harsh, unjust, merciless military machine. And its sins were too many to number. It is simply too screwed up and messed up and washed up for a good and holy God to have anything to do with it. You see, Nineveh is not just the place you don't want to go. It's the place that is simply out of God's reach, or so Jonah thought, or so we think. You see, it's the friend or family member that you've prayed for, but they, they never seem to change. They never seem to want to know about this God you believe in. It's the peer or the colleague who laughs at your faith and your beliefs and your values, how you live. It's the person you try to love, but if they care, they don't show it. If they appreciate it, it's not clear. It's the situation that never seems to get any better, regardless how much you pray about it. It just seems hopeless. It's the child that you've prayed for for years and they seem totally uninterested. Well, God says to Jonah, Jonah, that, that's where we're going. <laughs> we're going to go to Nineveh. And when you get there, God says, I have a message for you to deliver. And if you remember back to the first time God called Jonah, he told him to go to the great city of Nineveh and do what? You remember? Preach against it. That's what he was supposed to do, preach against it, because it's wickedness, he says, has come up before me. It's as if there's a stench of wickedness in God's nostrils. And Nineveh indeed was a wicked place. This was a place that killed babies. This was a place that had really few sexual boundaries. Very little idea of marriage fidelity. It was a place where one social group kind of like a parasite, lived off the other social groups beneath it, took advantage of them any way and every way they could. This is the empire whose armies, you understand, will eventually ravage the northern tribes of Israel in, in about 20 to 40 years. They will, they will be pillaging, plundering, killing, murdering all of the Israelites in the northern kingdom. And as they did, and as they carted these people off into exile, they left, so we're told, piles of dead bodies along the road that people had to march through 
as they went off into exile. If any city in the world at that time deserved to let them have it from a holy God, it was Nineveh. But now God says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. It's a message that's kind of surprising. We read that Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. And you know, right there, we should actually pause because if you have been reading the book up to this time, that deserves a little bit of a round of applause, does it not? I mean, come on. Uh, Because it's the only time in the story so far that Jonah does what God wants him to do. Everything else gets mixed up, gets all mixed up in his disobedience, his anger, uh, his exclusivism. You know, Israelites matter, but not Gentiles. His hiding, his anger. But here, after all the ups and downs, Jonah finally obeys. So, you know, give him a hand, (laughs) we should say. And let me say a word about this. Because I I, I know that we all get stuff wrong a lot. At least I I know that about you. (laughs) The Apostle Paul reflects on this in a letter we've studied uh, with Daniel, leading us through it, the book of Romans. Even the Apostle Paul, you know, he's he's ruminating and and pondering and reflecting on this. And he says, "I, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And part of the point is that this, this battle is really maddening to any of us that want to follow Jesus and yet find this principle at work in us that doesn't want to follow Jesus. But if we're being honest and we're telling the whole story, you know, amidst those kinds of struggles that are very real, I mean, there are moments, there are times when we get things right, yes. No, none of you ever get anything right. Yeah. We get some things right. Moments when we could gossip about a friend or a colleague, but we don't. Moments when we might act angrily toward a spouse, but we have the sense to examine ourselves first and we don't. Moments when we might act lustfully or impulsively, and yet we resist. Moments when we serve, when we choose to share or sacrifice. Or we we give an account of our faith to someone who seems to be curious and is asking questions. And I got to tell you, in those moments when we obey, even if it seems like something so small, hardly noticed at all, you need to know that God notices. And I'm here to tell you, it pleases him. It just pleases him. I was talking with someone not that long ago who had been struggling with looking at pornography And a lot of guilt and shame that goes with that, around that, as you well know. And I listened and reflected, but in our conversation, what I mostly wanted to do was help this individual to see that amidst all of his struggles, these times when there was failure in his life, there were also times when he was getting it right. Uh, seeking out accountability, our conversation, even that we were talking about this, getting help that he needs, trying to resist temptation. And yes, even though there may be times of failure along the way, God is pleased, friends, when we resist, when we fight, when we obey. And 
We all need to know that and remember that. Obedience matters. We all need to be reminded that when we obey God, when we resist temptation, our heavenly Father is so pleased. Because you see, at that point in time, we are trusting Him instead of trust and, and His will and His wisdom instead of trusting in ourselves. Or instead of just doing what the world would have us do. What the world says is just fine to do. We need to know that our obedience matters on so many different levels. It matters in terms of our own personal growth and becoming like Jesus. But it even matters in terms of our impact on the world around us. You know, if, Joe's, if Jonah doesn't go, we, we wouldn't see what we are about to see happen in Nineveh, humanly speaking. And so Jonah obeyed God. He goes to Nineveh. But, but just because we obey God, of course, that doesn't mean that our circumstances are going to be exactly what we want them to be. Jonas weren't. As soon as Jonah arrives in Nineveh, the reality of this situation sets in. We read this in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 3. It says, now Nineveh was a very important city. Uh, a visit required three days. And we don't know really what that means. Interpreters have all kinds of theories about this. Does it take three days to walk across it? Does it take three days to walk around it? Or just it means it, 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 it takes three days to get all the rides? You know, kind of like going to Disneyland or something. We're not, not really sure. It just means it's a big, important city. You can't just show up and see it in the blink of an eye. It says, on the first day, Jonah started into the city. And he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's his message. Uh, Jonah's probably frustrated when he preaches this message. Uh, he's probably already seen more sin and evil than he wants to see or than he can stand. And so he stops and he preaches what probably on record is the shortest sermon ever preached, just about. Eight words long in English, six words long in Hebrew. Imagine a six-word sermon. <laughs> what? <laughs> You're thinking, if only we could be so blessed, right? Jonah's message is somewhat vague. By that, I just mean it, it, it lacks a lot of details. It lacks all the characteristic features of most Old Testament uh, prophetic messages. There's no thus saith the Lord. There's no naming of sins. There's no appeal for the victims that are experiencing injustice, violent sin, and so. Uh, and, and most importantly, there's not even a mention of God in that message. And so we do wonder is this the message that God gave Jonah to preach? And the answer is, well, maybe. Maybe it is. Maybe God knew nothing more needed to be said. This was what needed to be said. That's it. Or maybe this isn't everything Jonah said. It's just kind of a summary statement of his main theme. That's possible. Or maybe as some scholars think, even though Jonah obeys God and goes to Nineveh, what he delivers up in terms of a message is sort of abbreviated. His whole heart's not in it. Maybe he's thinking, what possible good could come from me preaching to this city, to these people, this message? He's sort of caught up in what you could call a no way list. This is a list, by the way, we all have. A no way list when it comes to what we think God can do, 
what God will do. Jonah, Jonah's list would probably go something like this. You know, there is no way God can change things here in this evil, wicked, abhorrent city. The messenger is unfit as he reflected on himself. After all, he'd been the reluctant prophet. The message is too short. The city is too large. The culture is too foreign. The people are too wicked. The time frame is too limited. It, it, it's all the reasons why there's just no way any of this, this preaching of this message to this city could possibly make any difference. And our no way lists are not that different. We say things like, you know, I don't get this culture that I'm living in, how it's changing. I don't like its values. I don't like the secularism. I don't like the greed. I don't like the sexual ethics. So there is no way my faith, my witness, my obedience, my church are ever going to change things or ever going to matter, ever make any significant difference whatsoever. It was quite a few years ago, uh, I had a brother-in-law who was an alcoholic and he, he was a pretty functional alcoholic. He was hardworking, super likable, uh, always willing to help people, even professed faith in Jesus. But alcohol was an addiction that he just couldn't and didn't overcome. And when he drank, which was almost every night, and it was certainly every weekend, he became a very different person, belligerent, violent, even dangerous to be around. And I talked to Mike, my brother-in-law, many times about this, about faith. He was always sorry. He was always repentant. I prayed for Mike for years and years, along with my sister, his wife, and um, nothing ever changed. Got to a point where my sister finally divorced him and there were never any breakthroughs, uh, never any successful repentance or lasting turnaround that we saw, no surprising outcomes. And then Mike died from complications with alcohol and <laughs> made you wonder, you know, what's the use? What difference does obedience make? What difference does praying make? What difference did my faith or Alice, my sister's faith, really make? And it just makes you wonder whether this Christian stuff really works. And maybe you've got a story like that. Or you know a situation like that. Something that makes you stop expecting. Stop believing. Stop hoping even. Stop praying. Friends, Jonah's story is meant to encourage us. It's meant to remind us that God is a God of surprise. And God is never, ever powerless to affect his perfect will. And whenever we think things are heading down, 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 whether that's in our life or somebody else's or in the world that we live in, we can know that God is still up to something wonderful, something great. Even when we don't know what it is, even when we don't understand it at all. As I said, my, my brother-in-law professed faith 
in Jesus. He just never overcame his addiction. So did God not answer our prayers for, for Mike? Well, not the one about Mike's addiction, at least not the way we prayed about it. But God did take home, Mike home uh, to be with himself, to be with Jesus. And I'm guessing that cured his addiction. And his sons, all of them, came to faith in Christ. Uh, and they would say that a big part of how all of that happened was seeing their dad struggle with alcohol and struggle with God and watching their mom labor to live in obedience to God in what was oftentimes just a horrendous set of circumstances. That's how God used that. And my point is just that we often don't know and understand how God is working, what exactly he's up to. We just have to trust that he is at work. And we trust by praying, continuing to pray. And, and we, we trust by being willing to accept that we don't understand and we trust by obeying, doing what we think he wants us to do in any given moment, in any given place. That's how we trust. And here in our story, God was certainly at work in Nineveh. After Jonah's one-day march and six-word sermon, the text says the Ninevites believed God. <laughs> what? These are the people farthest away from God. The people least likely to ever believe Jonah's message. They believed God. And not just a few, it says, but apparently all of the people. Now, it's important we ask this question because it's one that I certainly asked as I read the text and reflect on it, you're probably asking it too, well, is this, was this saving faith? Did these people become followers of Jehovah? Is that what happened here? Massive repentance, yes, and then they, they all become the Israelites, they become Jews? Do the Ninevites enter into a covenant relationship with Jehovah God? And just to put all the cards on the table, you know, interpreters differ about this. I would just observe this, that in verse five, when it says the Ninevites believed God, uh, the word that's used there is Elohim, which was the common generic word for God, any God. Uh, it's not God's personal name, like we saw back in chapter one. And if you missed that message, wow, bad to be you. But one of the things we saw is that when the sailors came to faith in God, it had a lot to do with understanding and embracing the personal name of God, Jehovah, Yahweh. But here that, that's not the case. What, what this leads me to believe is that probably what happens here is absolutely mass repentance of, of sin, absolutely mass recognition of social injustice, hatred, wickedness, but probably, probably not personal faith and trust in Jehovah God. The Ninevites probably did not become converts to Judaism, probably. 
Their repentance was real, as real as it can get. Uh, they definitely embraced their guilt and their sin and their need to turn from it. It says in verse five, they declared a fast all of, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was this abrasive cloth, usually made out of goat hair, very uncomfortable. It was worn in public as a sign of repentance, of changing your mind, of turning from some behavior that you needed to turn from. And even the people of privilege and power are doing this. These are public acts of repentance made by all of the people in Nineveh. We read in verse six that when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Again, wow. This is a brutal dictator, friends. He gets up off his throne and takes off his royal robes and falls to his knees in repentance before the God that Jonah represents. It's amazing. You might be wondering, you know, this is remarkable and you'd be right. This is remarkable, but God is actually just getting started. If we keep reading, it says, Then he, the king, issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, he says. <laughs> There's a real air of humility there. Who, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. I think there's a recognition there that maybe, just maybe, Jonah's God could be a God of compassion, a God of mercy. And just in case you're not smiling yet, God didn't just reach the people and the nobles of, and the king. He also reached the livestock. <laughs> Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Uh, what do you think the cow thought? <laughs> you know. But the point is, the people of Nineveh get it. They believe they have sinned. And they believe they need to repent. And they understand that nobody is exempt, not even their animals. Now, this is a story filled with surprise. It's a story filled with miraculous outcomes. <laughs> but the best surprise is yet to come. We read in verse 10 that when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Do you see it? Do you get it? Turns out the book of Jonah is not a great tragedy. We talked about that. Two kinds of literature, tragedy, comedy. The book of Jonah is not a great tragedy that ends with no way, not possible, judgment comes. It's a great comedy where joy and laughter and life win the day. These people, because of God, get exactly, and I mean exactly, what they do not deserve. When God delivered Jonah from the depths of the sea, the joke was on sin and on death. And here, when God delivered Nineveh from the depths of their sin, the joke was on Jonah. 
And the joke is on those of us who stop believing, you see, that God can reach the unreachable. The joke is on those of us who say we believe in a God for whom all things are possible, but live and pray as if there's just no way. Live and pray as if God is measurable. God is fully predictable. God is sensible. God is not at all, all powerful. Friends, Jonah teaches us that God is and always will be a God of surprising, immeasurable grace. A God of unexpected mercy, a God of impossible outcomes. Because God doesn't look at Nineveh and say, no way, not possible. He says, I am the Lord who rescues people from their sins and I am going to do something in your days that you will not understand. But it will be good. You need to believe and you need to trust. See, the joke here in Jonah is on the cynics and the skeptics and the doubters who stop believing that with God all things are possible. And if we don't believe that all things are possible with God, I would just note that then the joke actually is on us. You see, the book of Jonah reminds us of what Jesus was all about. Jesus was all about the impossible. Jesus came and demonstrated that he could reach the unreachable and touch the untouchable and love the unlovable, and even work in Nineveh. Jesus was at work in Nineveh. Even if Nineveh is a friend or a family member who hates God, even if Nineveh is a situation that seems absolutely hopeless to you, even if Nineveh is a place where no reasonable God would go, even if Nineveh is a nation that denies God, Jesus can be and will be at work there. Maybe not in ways you understand. Now, all of this, of course, raises all kinds of questions, I think, for all of us. The first one it raises is, you know, will we go where God calls us to go? Even if it's to Nineveh, the place we don't really want to go. I'll give you some examples. You know, will we start to pray for the neighbor who doesn't seem to like our faith, our belief, our way of life? Will we pray for the friend? Will we pray for the family member or the fellow student or the fellow worker? Or will we pray for the nation that seems more and more set against us? The nation that seems beyond hope, the nation that seems hell-bent on evil or practicing sin or denying God. Will we love them? Will we serve them? Will we tell them the truth and invite them into this life, this life with Jesus? Invite them into this community that together tries to follow Jesus. Will we start to make that person or that situation that seems so out of reach a matter of thy will be done, Lord. Thy will be done. You see, this is not about having an agenda or forcing 
a conversion or even forcing a conversation. This is about us having God's heart for people. This is about us caring the way God cares. This is about us obeying God as it relates to other people, people who are different than us, people with different values, different beliefs. This is about us loving our neighbors when and how and where we have opportunities to do so. This is about us listening to God. This is about us obeying God and spreading his message, the message he gives us to others. Friends, we have to remember for our God, anything is possible. And if we make our mission in life the mission of God, and that's the key, really. (laughs) We're not inviting God to enact our mission, to join us in our mission. We're asking him to change our hearts so we will be on mission with him. And if we do that, friends, the places and the people that we will see God change and the things that we will see God do, wow, they will be incredible. And I've just got to say this uh, because I want to. This is why we as a church want to be a church that plants churches. It's not that we're just looking for somewhere to waste money. (laughs) This is what church planting is about. Creating communities of people and communities all around the world that represent Jesus, that will strive together to obey Jesus, that will be a witness and influence, a loving, serving community for, for Jesus. This is why we partner in Chennai and Bangalore. This is why JP is here. Many of you have asked me, why is he here? <laughs> this is why. God is calling him to plant a church. We want to be a part of that. This is why we planted in Centennial. This is why we partner with people in Oxford planting a church. This is why we partner with people in Leeds planting a church. And I'll tell you, as we see God work, you understand this is what will transform and change us. It will make our faith go deeper and our faith grow stronger. And we will believe more and more in the God who can do the impossible. And this will happen so much more gloriously and so much greater than if we just stay at home and hide or do what Jonah did, run. Now, as incredible as this story has been thus far, and I do believe it's been pretty incredible, the real climax is still to come. And the real test of God's grace is still ahead. And if you want to know more about that, you'll have to come back next week when we conclude this incredible, surprising story. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for how you reveal yourself to us in Scripture. We thank you that you are a God of surprise. We thank you that you give us exactly what we do not deserve, grace and mercy embodied in the life, the death, and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. We are thankful, Father, for your patience with us. We are thankful for the patience that we see you have with Jonah. 
We are thankful that you can accomplish things, God, that we, we just thought there was no way. We're even thankful, God, that when things don't, prayers don't get answered exactly like we want or things don't happen exactly the way we think they need to, we can still believe and trust and know that you're a good, good God. Thank you for meeting us in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.